Rama. Hello, Anne. Hi. Hi. Here we are. Here we are again. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Rama, I have a question for you. How did you get your name? Your name is Rama Jyoti Vernon, and I just wondered the story behind your name. (laughs) Well, there's a couple stories. Um, In the late 1960s, my bhakti yoga teacher, a great living saint from India, uh, gave me a name, and it was Jyoti. And he and I didn't really like the sound of it, and um, but as he called me that, other people all around me were calling me that, and what it meant was light, and it wasn't a big light, as he explained. It was a small light, but it represented the eternal flame that mm. never goes out, and that it just keeps burning. And from that eternal flame, other lights are lit. And he thought that was rather appropriate since I was training all these yoga teachers. And <clears throat> and they were going out and carried the light, you know. And some of them were very big lights. And and he explained that, that the, the jyoti just keeps on, it it's, it's just keeps on um, burning. What was his name? His name was Sant Keshavadas. And Keshava is one of the names of Krishna, and he was a great, great bhakti, incredible bhakti. And then he, um, in uh, a few years later, in the like 1971 or so, I was invited to go back and meet with Swami Jyoti or Mainanda. Now, since they, people were calling me Jyoti, so the people would know who I was, and my name was Mara at the time, Mare. And it was spelled Mara. Um, they called me Mara Jyoti. So when I went back to be with Swami Jyoti Ramananda, who was a, uh, a disciple of Sri Shivananda from Rishikesh, and Swami Jyoti Ramananda was a, he really was the one that opened up the Yoga Sutras for me to show me the deeper areas of the sutras. So I went back and studied with him. And since he had the name, Jyotir Mayananda, he gave me a name, and that name was Rama. Now, I didn't particularly like that name either, but <clears throat> but I remembered the story of Sage Valmiki when he was a highway robber man and he would uh, kill people and steal and... And one day he made the mistake of trying to accost a very well-known saint or sage. And the sage said, "If who shares in your karma with you? He said, you're doing this to support your family. Does your wife and children, do they support you in what you are doing to support them? And he said, well, of course they are. And he said, if... He said, I'd like for you to take me to your home. And if they say they share in that with you, you may do anything with me that you wish. And if they say they don't share that with you, then you will become my disciple. So ah. this this highway robberman, he agreed. <clears throat> they went to the home. And the wife was aghast. And so were the children. Of course we don't share in that karma with you. It's terrible karma, and yet they were receiving the support, you know. 
And um, so at that point, he, the robber, the, you know, the highway robberman, he bowed down, fell at the feet of the saint and said, I am your disciple, tell me what to do. So the sage gave him a mantra of Rama to repeat. And the, um, the robberman said, I cannot take the name of God in vain. These lips have lied. I have stole. I cannot repeat this name of Rama, which is the name of God. So he, uh, the, the sage, <clears throat> seeing what the problem was, he said, all right, then just repeat the name of Mara, which actually in Sanskrit it also meant the temptress of evil, the one who came to Buddha when he made the vow to sit under the Bodhi tree. And so... Um, Mara, he, as he took this mantra, Mara, it became Rama. Maram, 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 Maram. Oh. And because I knew of this story, when he gave me that name, I sort of smiled inside myself and I just, I let it be. I just said, okay, you know, this is a sign of the unit from the universe. And then everyone started calling me Rama. My husband loved it. He called me Rama, my children. And everyone suddenly started calling me Rama. I didn't tell anyone to do that. But it just happened that way. And so for 40, over 40 years, I've been Rama. And then, because I had the previous name of Jyoti from the Bhakti teacher of mine, <clears throat> it somehow got to be Rama Jyoti. <laughs> You know, it, it's not like I went out seeking a name at all. And it just happened. So I've helped a lot of people change their names because they need to hear it. They need to hear it over and over. And then slowly one person calls them that and then others start calling them that. And there is a saying that every time we change our name, we change our life. Oh. Wow. So are you so going to change it again? <laughs> well, I thought of doing that. I thought, um, I thought, oh, maybe I should just change it back. And then it's been so many years, and and um, I've decided to keep it that way, you know. But life became harder after it was Rama. Um, there were more responsibilities, like Lord Rama. Uh, there was, I started all these organizations after my name was changed. And again, those all grew organically, you know, the yoga world and the yoga world. And I thought maybe the name change was something that, you know, um, changed my life's directions. Because Rama is one who does their duty and does what's right in the Dharma. That's what he's known for, no matter how many self-sacrifices one makes. And when I look back over the years, I've, made a, I've had to do a lot of self-sacrificing <clears throat> to do what we call the work, or follow yeah. our destiny, or follow our dharma. And have you gone back to visit, uh, or the last time you went back, you said was in 71, or you went back after that? Um, no, I never went back after that. 
But I've always been inspired by these teachings of Swami Jyotirmayananda. But we have recently reconnected and have had correspondence. And I would like to go back and study with him. His books are just amazing. He's a wonderful teacher. How he simplifies the most complex teachings. He can simplify it in a way that is understandable and how we bring that into our everyday life. And he spoke English? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the things that you remember him teaching about? Well, he taught Raja Yoga. He also gave morning Hatha Yoga classes. I don't know if he's still doing that. But he would speak on the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, any of the scriptures. And what I had heard from one of his gurubhais with Master Shivananda was that uh, even Shivananda, when he was giving uh, lectures there at the ashram in Rishikesh, India, that Master Shivananda would visit his classes. Mm. He really is a very special, um, luminous being who really believes the teachings. And how did you find him? Well, it was, a you know, during those years of the late 60s and 70s, my house was a mecca for all the people in the spiritual life, especially yoga. And one of the teachers came through and wanted heard about me and wanted to meet me, and her name was Shiva Jyoti. And she was a disciple of his. And she's the one that put me in touch, told the ashram about me, And they made arrangements for, they wanted to meet me, and they made arrangements for me to come back there and be there. Yeah. That's how things happened. (laughs) And it was um, really quite wonderful. It was just a small period of time, two or three weeks, but it was a time to change my life. Wow. So you had a lot of people coming through your house when you were in California? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. Sometimes we'd have 100, 150 for satsang every week. And and then I had a lot lot of the swamis, mostly all of the the direct disciples of Master Shivananda. They came through my home. And Dr. Chaudhary, who was the disciple of Sri Aurobindo, who started the California Institute for, well, it's now known as Integral Studies. And uh, uh, he had me host a lot of programs for them. And he asked me to host the first Swami, who was um, um, Mahayoga Shakti. And so I did a lot of hosting. I'd organize programs where there'd be three or four speaking and invite my yoga students and and their disciples, and sometimes we'd have the disciples or the devotees of these different uh, swamis who were starting to create their ashrams and um, and their centers in the San Francisco Bay Area. And their their devotees would come to my home to serve, like Sant Keshavadas, who was very very universal in his teachings. He inspired members of all paths. And they would be sleeping in different corners of my living room or in the basement. 
and sometimes we'd have representatives of five different um, methodologies and ashrams and from Ananda to Swami Satchitanandas of Integral Yoga to Swami Vishnu's of Shivananda Yoga. Um, we would have these different groups staying in my house. Wow. And they would cook and they would clean and they would watch my children when I had to go out to teach. So I, I loved it. Those were the golden years when all this was just coming to the United States. And it was um, a wonderful experience. Wonderful. So there were, there were a lot of different lineages that were coming through then. Yes, yes. And it, it seems like now, how, do you think there's still a lot of lineages that have really become popular? or How, how is that? I don't see it as much. I think, you know, there's a peak for everything. But now, it's interesting, these are all the the men who came and brought yoga here. And now, it's a lot of the women who are here. And Muktananda's disciple, you know, Muktananda, I, um, his devotees even looked at my house as being a possible place where Muktananda could stay when he was here. Wow. And... Uh, and it was we were going to do that, and the, until we met, they met with us and my husband, and they said, "Well, and we would need this and that." We agreed, and then they said, "And we need for your whole family to move out while he's here." <laughs> well, that did it for my my attorney, trial attorney husband, and he refused to. So they found another place for Swami Muktananda. But, you know, and I met his translator who later quit, and then Sri Chitvalasananda came in, and now she has the whole movement, you know, Siddhi Yoga, and um, took it even further. And Swami Vishnu's people took it even further. So now I see that it's a lot of the women like Kurumai and um, Karudamai and all of, you know, all of these different wonderful uh, inspirational women who are carrying the teachings now. So it's almost like a second wave is coming in. Wow. Do you think do you think there's there's new teachings that are coming in now or do you think some of the other teachings are getting solidified or I don't think there's any new teachings any anywhere at any time. <laughs> it's all, if it's truly truth, truth is is uh unchanging and eternal. And if it is truth, it is the same teachings coming through different, you know, different um, vehicles of expression that some understand uh, and others need to hear it through another vehicle of expression. And so um, we have many things available to us today, but it all goes back to the same ancient roots if it's truly truth then it has the same roots. And they're just expressing it in different ways. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful that so much is available. When I started in this, not that much was available at all. There were hardly any teachers in this country. So this is, um, this is a major shift that's happened. And when you started teaching, were you teaching in the studio? Uh, no, no. My very first class, I was invited to teach at the Montclair Recreation Center in the Oakland Hills. And um, 
I taught a class of 18 teenagers from ages 13 to 18. And it was revelatory for me, you know, and I was worried about them being restless and having to keep moving. And I had them move, but also I saw that when they went into relaxation, they went so deep and that they needed that so much. And it was in that class that one of the students had an experience in Surya Namaskar of how the sun's rays touch on the head and on the face for every month of the year. I think I described that to you before. And she was so beautiful. She was about 16 or 17, and, and she got it. And some of these people were just profound in what was happening for them. These teenagers would explain to me and um, their experiences. And then it was apparently, it was so, um, uh, apparently was successful in the eyes of the managers of the center that they asked me to come back and teach an adult class. And I went in this one night and there were 40 people in the class. And of course, I was scared. I never liked to be up in front of people. and But I knew that I had to do it because I was afraid to do it, and I had to face that fear. And not knowing that was in the sutras because I hadn't really gotten, read the sutras yet. And so um, I did, and um, people seemed to get a lot from the work. And at that time, I would teach in a dark room with candlelight and music. It was in... Um, the Zen music, which just came out at that time, and we had records. We didn't even have um, tapes at that time. And so I'd play the record, and people just loved it, and they would go so deep, and it was very meditative. And um, one day, the people of the center asked if I would um, uh, please bring people out of uh, the relaxation before I left, because I was so... I was so self-conscious. I choreographed the class so no one would ever have to look at me. And then when they were in relaxation, I would leave and go home. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it was, when I, I really got that was one day in the grocery store, a woman came up to me and said, are you my yoga teacher? I've been studying with you for two years and I never was sure what you look like. <laughs> and then, and then the, the head of the recreation center said, well, if you bring them out of relaxation, it would be better because one man slept there all night. (laughs) (laughs) He went so deep. So I thought, okay. So, um, you know, I, I thought I just have to be there for the people and do what works for the people. And I I had many experiences with that, you know, just many of, of, um, my own, getting over my own self-consciousness, which is a form of the ego, and then just having to be in front of people and having to be all right till I got to the place of unattachment. It didn't matter if they were there, and it didn't matter if I didn't teach. You know, I was the same. And I remember once saying, to Ms., saying that to Mr. Eingar, how 
I never wanted to teach and how much, you know, that was after many, many years. <laughs> and I said, how long do we go on teaching? I just never felt I wanted to teach yoga. And, um, but yet I feel it's been a blessing and I feel it's been my dharma and my path and my destiny because I never advertised that people just kept asking me more and more and more to teach. And I just went where I was invited. And he said something really profound. He said, when you go into one day, you may go into the class and there's no one there. And he said, then you can, you know, first, well, he said, I'm sorry, let me, let me go back a little bit here. He said, you may go into the class and there's, there are people there. And whether it's one person or 50 people, just say, thank God, I have someone to teach. And he said, one day you may go into the class and there's no one there. And then you can say, thank God, I am free. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Uh, so it's been a wonderful experience. Uh, I, just, I thank God for it. What do you think about the guru-disciple relationship and how that might have been in India and how that's sort of changing here? Well, I think this is a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> I have so much to say on that, but I'll well, try to be brief. Well, no, I, I, I'm interested to hear about it. And I you know, eventually want to ask you also a little bit more about what you think about the breath as, because you've mentioned the breath being your guru and that's another, um, and what that means too. So, but I'm interested yeah. first to hear a little bit more about the, your, yeah. what you think about the guru disciple. Well, I always felt that we had to find it within ourselves. And, but when I met Sant Keshavadasan was in the Bhagavad Gita class and felt my heart totally open like the petals of a lotus and, and the tears of lifetimes just just came pouring out of me after the class was over because I was really self-conscious. I would never cry and I prided myself on that. And then the tears just came for two years. I cried for God. And, um, I really, and it, he awakened that in me. Something awakened, and that's called darshan. Drish, from drish to see and uh, you know where we're really seeing we're seeing the universal through that form so in that that guru can awaken that in people but I ultimately believe we still have to go home and do the work for ourselves we need to do our practice and it was through the practice that I was able to open to those channels and then afterwards be able to funnel the experience uh, into my life and um, and let the heart be open and let it come into my teachings. And after that happened, I'd stand in the class in Tadasana and I just wanted to, instead of giving all the directions on moving their toes and their ankles and their feet, I just wanted to say, love, just love. <laughs> I yeah. felt that love for my feet, like, you know, it's like an element of God. And so... It, and I realized after that experience that all the teaching I had done up to that point, I had done with a dry and empty heart. And now the heart 
was so full. And I felt my heart, my physical heart, wasn't big enough to expand fast enough for the love field that was now entering in. And it was just a, a magnificent experience. And miracles happened in those two years of, you know, which I, I never thought I'd bow down to any man or anything. And here I was bowing down to everything. And I was hugging the trees until the neighbors complained to my husband that there was a person in the backyard at night hugging the trees. <laughs> they thought it was a burglar. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> and um, and I just, I bowed down to insects and um, my children and even to my husband. You know, I just, I just felt this love of the whole universe and every form that that universe was expressing itself through. And it, it was, healing miracles happened around me for other people and every wish I had would be fulfilled and it was just a wonderful experience. And at the same time, we have to do our own inner work. And there were, I've been with several gurus after that and I would sit with them and I would sit with their disciples and many of the disciples would have similar experiences sitting with the guru, but sometimes that's all they would do was just sit with the guru, but they wouldn't practice the yoga. Oh. And so I really felt strongly that the practice is what prepares us, and the practice is what um, uh, helps us to integrate it into our, you know those experiences we have into our everyday lives. So. I always looked at my guru, and I went to this teacher and that teacher, and I'd say, are you my guru? No, I'm not. I'd go to the next one, and many of them that I hosted in my living room. And they would say, no, I'm not your guru. And I, I, I felt kind of sad and left out, you know, because I would get different inspirations from different teachers. And I thought, I felt like an orphan. <laughs> you know, I don't have a guru. But... But, you know, one day I asked Baba Haridas that question, and he wrote this long, beautiful letter to me. And the gist of the letter was, you know, be like the bee that sips the nectar from many flowers. And remember, don't stay on the lotus after the sun goes down. Mm. And if for people here in this country who don't know what happens to the lotus, when the sun goes down, the lotus closes. Then I thought, oh, it's okay. I don't have to dig the well only in one place. I can appreciate and host all these teachers and find God everywhere in every church and synagogue and, and uh, temple. And then, and then I had one teacher that was coming through, a wonderful teacher. And I told him what Bapat Haridas had said. He said, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being in the lotus when the lotus closes? When the sun comes out again, the lotus opens. <laughs> then I really got confused. <laughs> but I've, I've integrated it into my life, and I'm very much at peace with the fact that I have sipped the nectar from many, many teachers, and I've been able to be the devotee, not the disciple, but the devotee honoring these teachers and honoring their disciples and the people that are drawn to them and get the infusion of that understanding through those teachings. I feel blessed to have been able to do that and without getting confused. I think why 
in the ancient times it was said you only study one path, one teacher, because I think some people do get confused and they don't know how to explore the periphery of the circle and then draw it into the center where it all integrates. I think they get two feet outside of the center into the periphery of the circle and they get confused because they can't see how all the parts merge into that one. So I think that's why they have said that in the past. And we never know what can awaken it in us. You know, it could be a child, it could be a, a pet, it it could be a sunset, it could be watching a flower unfold. We just don't know where the guru lies, where that essence of the darshan will be for us. And then when you say sometimes that the breath is your guru, how how does do you feel that the breath has that inspiration every day? Oh, yes. You know, um, my mother used to teach me, you know, that God was within the heart, in the heart center, rather. And And then I discovered sometimes we feel so away. We feel... Um, cast out, we may feel there are times when we don't feel that presence. And I I just discovered it's not just in the heart center. That breath is in every cell of our being, but we don't think about it. You know, they say if we take 10, 10 steps towards the divine, the divine will take a thousand steps towards us. And I realize that when we don't you know, it's like a child. The mother's always thinking of that child. And as that child goes older, the child goes off and becomes independent. And it doesn't think of the parents. And there's many parents that have been ignored by the children. And and I feel that's how we are with the divine presence that has created us. And we forget. And the remembrance is very simple. It's in the breath. And if we take that breath as a reverential, um, receive it as a reverential offering from the universe to us, and then if we give it out, we give it as a reverential offering into the world around us. It is so sacred. And in just one breath, we can feel that reconnection to our source. And the source is always there. It's only our forgetfulness that that makes us think that we're not connected. And we're always connected, but we forget. And so when we take the breath, and why I say it's the guru or the teacher, is when we're in an asana, and I think we talked about this before, Anne, that when we're in the asana, the breath will tell us, is it time for us to stop where we are and just work with any, some scars that may arise in the form of pains in that one? Or are we to go, is it calm and soothing? Can we go a little bit further? And then if it gets erratic and spasmodic, or we hold or retain the breath um, in a tense way, not in the Kevala Kumbhaka, then are we, um, you know, it says to us it's time to come out. We don't use clocks to time our being in a pose. We use our breath. And the breath becomes a guide. It becomes a teacher. It's, it becomes a guru. If we're just 
focusing on that. And then we feel the divine presence is not just around us, but it's totally within every cell of our being. Mm. When did you find the breath? When did I? Yeah. Oh, well, I was taught originally using the breath with the movement. And then when I started working with Mr. Iyengar, who I love very much, and honor the great thing he gave to the world of the alignment, I lost my breath. <laughs> I lost the attention to it and the awareness. And one day I asked Mr. Iyengar if um, I asked him if um, why, you know, when will we learn the breath? He didn't talk about the breath in the pose. And he said, first get the pose, then then you can you can focus on the breath. But I found that, you know, with this system, we never fully got the pose and that by not breathing, I was closing down inner space as I moved into the pose. And that it was too late to bring in the breath once I got into the pose. I'd already closed that inner, inner space. And it took me a few years after I dropped away from this methodology to because I wasn't feeling good. Um, I did have those spiritual awakenings that I had before when I first started yoga and where I used the breath in the movement. And so I went back to bringing the breath into the movement and it started to feel the way I felt before, you know, really at peace, calm, uh, feeling the connection to that source, to the divine presence in every, everywhere I was, everything I did, which I had lost for a few years, eight years working with him. It doesn't mean everybody does that. It was just that I needed the breath. And he once said that to me. He said, your, your um, um, practice, your sadhana is not asana because they came easy to me in those days. He said, your sadhana is pranayama. And I really took that to heart. And so I discovered more and more and more about the breath. And Angela, I went to a workshop with Angela Farmer, who was sort of pulling away to work on her own for a while. And she was teaching the back breathing, which I had learned from a French teacher before that who had worked with Ms. Jayengar many years ago. And, and I tried and tried and tried, and I couldn't quite get it. And I tried for days and days. And then I went home, and I was just lying there one evening, you know, slipping into that state of sleep. And I was just thought, okay, I'm just giving up. I couldn't get that breath. I'm just letting it go. And just then, as I let go more and more and more, my whole back body opened like into the night sky. And I was just out there with the stars and the cosmos, and I opened into the universe. And it was just phenomenal, and I really got we effort and we effort and we effort. And then when we let go, grace happens. Mm. And then everything opened for me. And then after that, I just kept working with it and playing with it, exploring it. And new insights would come at different intervals. And that's how the breath worked for me. And I saw the pranayama was in the asana. It wasn't separate from the asana, how we could adjust our pose 
to adjust our, the breath in the nostrils so we could do alternate nostril. We could do anuloma viloma in the postures, which I do all the time now, and kegel kumbaka, which is the in and out breath feeding into one another, which makes it look as if the breath is stopped, which stops the mind, which we talked about before. And that will come, can come out of this naturally and organically. And I just felt, I felt I was communing with the universe when I brought my breath into that. And now I bring the breath into every aspect of my life. Wow. Do you, and do you ever practice specific pranayamas in specific asanas or Oh, yes, in the asana. I used to do it separate. I would get up at 4 in the morning, and I would do two hours of just pranayama, and I'd study with some great pranayama teachers from the Himalayas. And I would just do pranayama, and then I would do two hours of yoga practice, and then I would go down and make breakfast for my husband and children, and then I would go to back to the big yoga room upstairs and teach the teachers who would come. And I thought, you know, this is amazing. And then I would do three-hour class, and then I'd go off and teach some more classes. And when I looked at it, yoga, I would be practicing yoga and I, would, I felt teaching was a form of practicing, too. I would be doing this 12 to 15 hours a day. And uh-huh. it was wonderful. Oh, and then I would, ha- I would insert the meditations also within the day and also in the evening before I went to sleep. <clears throat> and you would do meditations that were conventional seated meditations? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. And now I found I can do the meditation in asana. And I guess because I was a householder and had children and had such a busy life, I was always looking for ways to do everything in such the shortest amount of time. <laughs> and so now I've learned how to do that. You know, I can bring in the pranayama, the meditation, into the asana. Mm. But I still like to sit. I think that's quite wonderful. There's some people who, when they're starting out meditating, have problems with uh, their limbs falling asleep. And I was in, some people think that, oh, well, you should just sit through that and force yourself to ignore that. And some people think, oh, well, you should do asana so that you are more comfortable in the meditation. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yes, yes. If they're falling asleep, they're not in a mudra. The asana is a mudra. Whatever sitting position they're in the spine has to be straight. Well, in the curvature of the spine and the head, as, as they say in the sutra, the head, the neck, the breast need to be in a certain alignment over one another and then over the tailbone. And when you're in that alignment, you don't even have to wrestle with your thoughts. But when the head drops forward, which it usually does when people start losing the awareness of their pose, then they go into sleep. And there's a very thin line between sleep and samadhi. And the posture is what defines that line of demarcation. So asanas are known as mudras. And when we take the hand mudras, if we're going, if our mind is strained, and we're going into the tamasic state, which would be sleep at that moment, then the hands sort of come apart, 
the spine gets weaker and it sort of bends and the head drops and the chitta, when the chitta re- uh, withdraws itself from the mind, you know, the mind stuff withdraws itself from the central nervous system, which is the preparation for sleep, then the body can't maintain its alertness. And that's when we need to lie down or our head drops, you know. And so the whole thing of the asana is to remain alert, but you to go into this place of sleep. And you're between the theta state and the beta state, the mind waves, from waking to the sleep that's beyond uh, or that theta state that just precedes the delta, which could be a very tamasic uh, form if we don't train ourselves to stay in that center between the waking and the sleep state. And the posture helps me to do that. I can do that in an asana. And uh, in any, you know, well, not any asana, but certain asanas. And that's what the sitting pose is for. We keep the spine very alert and, you know, very, very straight so that we don't go into the state of sleep, but it feels like we're sleeping. But the body, even the hand mudras, are very firm. And then we go into a state of samadhi rather than sleep. Mm. And what about people who have numbness in their legs who notice that tingling sensation? (laughs) Oh, yeah. When I first started meditation, this was so funny. The teacher, um, well, for one thing, I was afraid to close my eyes in meditation for fear of what may come up, for fear of what I might find. And I was like 20 years old, or 21 then. And then the teacher said, now I want you to take a sitting pose, and we're not going to move it for one hour. Oh, my God. (laughs) I thought I had died. And my, I thought my legs had felt like my legs had turned black and blue and everything. They went from the tingling to the numbness, back to the tingling. Oh, my gosh. It was horrendous. But I, I stayed in it, and I went through it. And now I almost laugh because I can sit there for a few hours, and it never happens. It's when we start to do this, the energy is going up, you know, to other Uh, chakras, other centers, and it takes it away from the extremities, the lower extremities especially. And then if we're not accustomed to that, we sometimes get a little frightened and all of that. But later, later it doesn't do that. It's as if the energy just keeps flowing everywhere. You know, it's in the beginning we have different experiences and later on, and we just sit through it and look at it. But I was afraid that that first time I did this, that my legs were black, I'd have to have them amputated. <laughs> I mean, I just look at, and I, I forgot how, what thoughts may go through the beginner's mind, or they may create nerve damage, or, um, you know, they may never walk again. <laughs> I just laugh when I look back on my early days at all of this. And it was, and it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, maybe every so often there'll be a little bit of numbness, but when you get accustomed to it, there's no fear around that. And then the feeling comes back, you know, and then it may go away again. And then it comes back, you know, it's a Nietzsche, Nietzsche, changing, changing all the time. And so the posture is very important that we assume in meditation. 
to keep that alertness in both yeah. body and mind and yet go into those deep inner states but holding that alertness at the same time. I should say the awareness. Yeah. <clears throat> and do you and you find that people's postures are continually changing through the yoga postures so that the meditation posture is continually evolving to a point. Yeah. Well, but that's where you use the breath. Like you inhale and feel it going across the back body. And it may even round a little bit. And then you exhale and bring that spine in, offering it to the heart, which then as the heart becomes the extrovert, as Ms. Jayangar said, the head, the brain, the mind becomes the introvert. So as we lift from the chest, the head moves back, and then thought waves do not come in. It's like almost the thought wave cannot take form when we're in the spinal alignment. Mm. And yeah. I'm just saying that from years of experience with it. It's, it's just amazing. And I don't have to wrestle with the thoughts anymore. None of that. And, and I do it with the breath. So on the exhalation, the, the body wants to let go and it wants to drop with the breath. Instead, we let the breath come up through the spinal column and then we let the shoulders drop down as we exhale. And then what it does, there's a steadiness in the body. The head's not moving, the shoulders aren't moving, and there's a very deep steadiness and that creates the steadiness of mind. Mm. Yeah, I think the posture is so important. I know having worked with you and getting that alignment does make such a such a difference. It makes such a difference. It's amazing the difference it makes. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't we can lift into above our pains. We can transcend the pains of our past. We can transcend the pains of the body as we lift with the outgoing breath. And it brings us into this more transcendental consciousness and transformational consciousness. We aren't yeah. sinking into the old pains, you know, oh, poor me, the pity party, <laughs> <laughs> which it can be when we do Vipassana and take these hour vows out to move our position. And I got down with this pose, an hour wasn't enough, and I used to take five-hour vows not to move my position. And it was fascinating what comes up in those moments. Mm. Well, speaking of one hour, I think we're about out of time here today. Is there anything else you want to say? Yes, I want to say one thing. I am sitting here in Target (laughs) (laughs) on on an office chair and looking at the rows of towels and bedding and uh, washcloths, and and I'm just laughing as people pass by because <laughs> this <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the I'm talking a little softly because of that I didn't want to disturb them, but as I'm looking at all of these household items, I'm just thinking this represents my life as a householder, integrating the spiritual with the everyday life. And I'm just seeing the humor in that, and I'm just loving that. And I just, <laughs> and I just, at one time I just wanted to be, you know, a sadhu up in the Himalayas, and, and now I feel so blessed to have had the life as a householder 
and and the spiritual life as well. So here we are in Target exemplifying <laughs> that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, dear one. Okay, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.